Welcome to The Books That Built Me. In this episode, I talk to Louis de Bernier about why it's poetry rather than novels that is his real passion, the influence of Latin America on his work, and why war and peace is his literary lodestone. I'm Helen Brocklebank, and this podcast was recorded at the Club at Café Royal on the 9th of February, 2016. Can I just tell you what happened? You do tell me what happened. I, when I decided I was going to finally bite the bullet and try and get published, I had a friend at the school where I was working who, who had been married to a literary agent. And she said, you've got to find an agent, otherwise you'll get nowhere. This is true. Uh, but she had a friend called Lavinia Trevor, and I sent the poetry to Lavinia Trevor, and she said, I don't like poetry, I don't get it, I don't do it, there's no money in it. We should ask this, where's, where's your publisher? Well, Liz is over there. Hello, Liz. <laughs> Liz is my boss, I had to be very careful. I, I, had, a, I had a big problem with poetry, which, which is that the effect of modernism was to make me unsure of what a poem was. And, and, and so, you know, T.S. Eliot's poems are obviously poems, and he's a modernist, he's really the, our great founding father of modernist poetry in English, isn't he? But you try and write like him and you can't. No, so what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? And um, all, all the rules have gone out of the window, except the ones he felt like using from time to time, you know? <laughs> and and I, I was really worried about what was a poem and what wasn't. How did I, didn't, how, how did I know whether it was cut-up prose or poetry? And... I, I, I wrote lots of poetry and I'd read it through and i think, but th- this is too lumpy, you know, it, does, it isn't sufficiently musical, it's not a poem. And I, eventually I rang up a poet in Scotland, who's a friend of mine called Brian Johnston, he, he outed me as a poet at the St Andrews Festival, and he said, he, he said what he does is that he reads a poem over and over again and tinkers with it until it sounds right. And, you know, typically you do this walking around the room, which I suppose how you get the meter, the meter into it, but... I, I then went, decided I was going to make a proper study of meter, how meter works. And, you know, all the iams and trochees and dactyls and spondees and all that lot. And once I'd worked all that out, it suddenly became so much easier to see where the lines were going wrong. And it, it was like, it was like um, being given a, a spade to dig your vegetable patch when you'd only had a spoon before. <laughs> So anyway, at that, at that point, at that point, I thought, right, I can get published now. But I didn't actually ask my own publishers for, for years because I didn't want to embarrass them by giving them a project that they felt they couldn't go ahead with in case I was rubbish. And, and I had this fixed idea that I wanted line drawings. And other people did want to publish the poetry, but not with the line drawings. Well, the drawings are very, very well, we'll see that in the Well, in, in the end, I summed up the courage to ask my own publishers, and they said yes. Well, I'm not. I'm actually. Can we? Would you mind before we start getting into your book proper? Okay. This actually goes back to when I was about 26, and the me- the meter came on its own, luckily. Yes. On giving a silver heart to a cruel lady. Since you state that we must part, and no compassion moves your heart. Since mine is useless, being dead, take this silver heart instead. Your bed has not the space for me, so let this lie where I should be. Upon your breast, against your heart, to lie there still, although we part. Dragon School in Oxford, which is still going. And they've actually they've just written a new one, haven't they? I remember when they were book list and they were very good. Mm. Not the new one. It's full of modern rubbish, the new one. So tell, tell me about tell me about why you've chosen this particular book. Well, I, I went to a prep school that was in many ways utterly horrendous in that there was a culture of violence and bullying. One of the headmasters was um, a sadist and the other one was a pedophile. Oh. And I'm not sure if prefer the um, pedophile any day, at least he liked us. Um, <laughs> but uh, there, was, there was an inspirational English teacher there called Benjamin Adams, and he used to make us learn a poem every week, and I loved it. I still can remember a lot of these poems off by heart. 
And um, the Dragon Book, of course, could be bought in two volumes. There was volume one for, you know, for, for, for little ones and volume two for bigger ones. One year, one year towards the end of my distinguished career at this appalling institution, uh, we went to a ploughing match. <laughs> well, well, the point is, the point is, the headmaster awarded a prize for the best essay about the ploughing match, and I won the ploughing match essay prize, which was worth about ten shillings. And the headmaster asked me what I wanted, and I said I want the Dragon Book of Verse. So he, I still, I still have this. Um, this this prize for the ploughing match essay oh, with with the headmaster's signature in it, which I really like to spit on one day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's beautiful of John Clare, another kind of um, rustic classic. It's full. I mean, it's it's absolutely a brilliant collection of great classic characters. So there's uh, Richard Lovelace, which reminded me to call Lady Silverheart and. It's got it's got the greatest speeches from Shakespeare. Because that so your poet said your father would read poetry to you at the breakfast table or read Shakespeare. Well, my 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 father only became a soldier because Adolf Hitler suddenly popped his head over the hedge. My my father was heading towards being a poet, he, um, and uh, and he he was quite young when the war broke out. And, uh, Beginning of the war, he was a fire warden. He was one of the people who put the fire out on the roof of Elton Palace. Since when he's never, he, he's never had a head had a head for heights since. But <laughs> it was my job to enter the gutters after that. But but um, he he wrote poetry from a very young age, and in fact, my, my mother's nickname for him was Pote. And he wrote poems particularly for us children to celebrate, you know, to celebrate us and then about various friends and things that happened. You know, he even wrote a poem about the dog when he died. And he wrote, he wrote old-fashioned poetry, but only old-fashioned in the sense that T.S. Eliot would have thought it old-fashioned. Um, it was my father who told me, you can't use these and thous in poetry anymore. It's just, you know, that's gone. And I thought, well, that's such a shame, because so many things rhyme with thee and thou. <laughs> <laughs> and have you, and have you taken advice? Or have you I did take his advice. I had to scrub all the these and thous and find new ways of writing the stuff that I was doing when I was 12, you know. Um, and my father wrote very much in the style that you would recognise from the Georgian period. That's people like Walter de la Mer and John Macefield, or Rupert Brooke, John Squire. Macefield is well represented. But that one about cargoes, you know, dirty British coast with a salt cake smokestack back and down the channel in the Mad March day. It's got that one. You in. did learn it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he, I, I placed him with those poets, and the poet that he actually loved the most was John Betjeman. So and you you always tend to write similarly to the thing similar I mean the phrases things which are similar to what you read. So I think because okay. because because he, he imbibed so much John Batchman, really that's the one that you write like. Yeah, I think it just it seeps into you, doesn't it? It's a, it's a impossible thing to hold. Yeah. Here it is, principle osmosis. What you read becomes what you write. I'm hopelessly easy to to um, influence. So if if I. You know, the, the first poem in this book is, is a sort of fake Chinese poem because I just finished reading Arthur Wayne's translations from the Chinese. You know, and I, I, went through, I went through a phase of reading Persian poets and people like Rumi. And so, Rumi, Rumi as well. Yes, Rumi turns up in this quite a lot. Yeah, yeah and Sappho as well, actually. It was a really wonderful, wonderful poem. Yeah, no Sappho poems in the Dragon Book of Verse for some no. reason. I don't understand or, that. Or Kabafi. Yes, yes, Kabafi is my other big influence. But anyway, I think the Dragon Book of Verse sort of set, it set me off on the right track. What's nice, what's nice in the introduction, it says on the, it's, it's written on the principle that learning, learning poetry should be a delight and a, and a not a dreary task. And I wonder if we've lost something, we're not teaching our children to learn, learn poems in the way that we do. Actually, we were talking a bit about our children earlier, and that's what my children went to French school, and they do, they, they do learn French poetry by rote. It's universally rubbish, unlike the song. So the Dragon Book of Poetry is, is there, rooted in your psyche from an early age, a prize book. Um, I, and I, when, when my little boy is in the bath and we don't know what to talk about, I read him a poem from there. <laughs> Which ones does he like? Well, he loves pretty much, he writes a lot, he likes a lot of them. I mean, for example, there's, there's a great epic poem about how Horatio kept the bridge, which is, do you know that one? It's by Longfellow. Last poster of Clusium by the nine gods he swore the great house of top, which is suffered long no more. 
See, I think my drag poetry will be loved by having the chicken. It would be so wonderful. So, so the Dragon Book of Poetry, we, what I do is we, we donate this, which is going to really kill me. I don't want to get, I don't want to give it away, but I am going to. So, please, would you give it to the who loves, who passionately loves poetry? Why do I have to decide? You don't have to decide. Because I've, I've decided for you. Come and come and get it. And, um, she, she, put her hand up, she put her hand up first. That's how we how we do it. We're going to move, move from move from poetry to uh, to fiction because the next the next book we're going to talk about is um, Moonfleet. Moonfleet. Who has read Moonfleet? Who has not read Moonfleet? Gosh, well, I haven't read it since I was a teenager either. For me, it was the ideal book as a young teenager. It, it involves um, illegal smuggling. It involves things like skeletons in rotting coffins under the crypt of a church where the barrels of illegal alcohol are rolling around in, the, in, the, in flood water. So you get a booming sound coming up from under the church. Everybody and says there's ghosts, it's haunted. It's the ghost. It keeps you away from, the, yeah. away from discovering yeah. the brand. But the plot involves a, a beautiful jewel which comes from the family of the Mohuns. And quite nefarious, Yes. And, and there's, of course, there's a parson and, and so on and so forth. And, there's, and um, probably, as far, as far as the influence on me goes, there's a love story. There's a love story between the protagonist and I think she's a girl called Grace, is that right? Grace. Yeah. Grace. Which which doesn't come to fruition until right at the very end. It's when is he is he thirteen when the John John Trench doesn't it that's yeah. the protagonist and he's mm. an awful. I mean that's that's such an important thing, isn't it? In charge, charge get rid of the parents. Mm. You know, the sense of abandonment. And actually, we were talking about boarding school abandonment. That makes you feel a little bit awful, actually. So you're quite unparented, cast out into the world. You're a horrible headmaster. You know, it depends. I I I met up with an old friend from school recently, and I was whinging to him about how what a bloody terrible thing it was to be sent to boarding school. And he said that his family was so awful that being a boarding school, so anyway, <laughs> being a boarding school was his normality. That's what kept him sane. So it works both ways. It does work both ways. <laughs> so the principal gets rid of the parents say that the, the children or the young protagonists can have a lot of fun. Is absolutely in this one, and she's mm. she's much she's much better born, isn't she? Than he is. She's the yes, um, she is. She, she's the she's the daughter of the Moon family, so kind of the ruling the yeah. ruling family. Um, but he loves her. And she, she when he's taken away as a prisoner, I think she says she'll leave a light in her window. And when where he eventually comes back, there is a light. There is because yes, so he's um, it's, it's, it's beautifully romantic, isn't it? It's very romantic. Yeah. Um, I, I, most, I mostly love the, the, the rotten skeletons. <laughs> it's brilliant. So, the, so, the, um, so John Trenchard, the hero, uh, he gets trapped in the crypt and he hears the smugglers coming. He's terrified that he's going to be cut off. So he has to clamber into one of the coffins, which is horrible. And he, gets, he falls out of it and he kind of grabs a tank of hair. Oh, and the skeleton has a big beard. <laughs> <laughs> And there's been a story about that there's the hidden treasure of the moon, the moon, excuse me, which the diamond, which was acquired under very shady circumstances, and no good will come of it. And he's looking at there, he's off in his quest. You know what, when I, when I became an English teacher about the age of 26 or something, my first proper job was at a high school in Ipswich, and the head of department was, 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 decided, was trying to make a clean sweep of all the old books that they've been using for decades. She's, and she had, she wants to have a Fahrenheit 451 party, which is, you know, that's the temperature that the books burn. And oh. she wants to burn the stock of Moonfleet. Oh, and I, I, even though she was left at the apartment, I was there for my very first few days. I just, I said, that's all right, I can't, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I, I took the whole stock, actually, and I, I gave it, I, did, I gave all the books away. So you didn't, you never, didn't teach it, you could teach it? No, I never taught it, no, I wish I had. No, I, I mean, I was taught. I was taught it when mm. I was eleven. Mm. I loved it. It was mm. fantastic. So, what kind of what kind of books appeal to you as a as a child? Historical fiction. People like Henry Treece, Rosemary Sutcliffe, and my my parents had quite a lot of. Well, they had they had some a very good collection of books, which were mainly about the Second World War, uh, personal accounts. Because, for example, my mother knew a character called Blondie Haslam, who was a naval hero. 
Um, so, so we had books about him and so on and so forth. She, my, my mother was a, she was a signals officer for submarines in the Indian Ocean. She went feminism came along in the seventies. She was totally contemptuous. She said, "What have they ever done?" Yeah, and my dad had been in North Africa and Italy, so we had we had masses of memoirs and things about her. And I I, I piled my way through those. And my my parents also had a habit of if there was a book that had any sex in it, they'd put a brown wrap around it. <laughs> I said, I mean, a big signal about you know, the book that you must go for. Obviously, my sisters and I read those first. <laughs> <laughs> and were there any were there any hidden gems then? I do remember. I do. I can't remember the names of the titles, but I certainly remember some episodes. <laughs> <laughs> they fell, fell, fell open at the uh, at the right. Like Lady Chappie always falls open at those um, particular pages. Well, your copy does. Yeah. <laughs> I was away at school, I had no, I was one copy of Chili Cooper that was passed around, but apart from that you had, you had, uh, Lady Trash's love and that's all the thing, you can learn about anything, um, you really like <laughs> Okay, when, what book was it that made you first think, I want to do that? Well... I sort of knew I wanted to write poetry from the age of 12. I, I just knew the way that people know they're going to be a nun or something. Um, so they're very much a calling? A calling, yes, but, but uh, I, had the, I had the frustration of years and years and years of not being any good at it, not understanding why I wasn't. You know, men often don't get going as a writer until they're in their early 30s, I and mean, with women it's often not until they're in their late 20s. Yeah. And well, the, 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 year, the years before your sort of wilderness years, when you feel that you, you feel strangely blocked off by circumstance and lack of talent. I don't, well, there is that kind of self-limiting thing, but but also it's about it's a writing is a craft, isn't it? I do, I do think though that that nobody is ever going to be a writer unless they read a lot. It's just not possible. If you if you don't read poetry, you're not you're you're not going to write poetry, and you're especially not going to write any good poetry. If you don't read novels, you're not going to write. You're not going to. You're not going to write one either. Yeah, I mean the really lovely thing about about the books that built me is that 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 is always so evident. The really good writers are the really voracious readers. So shall we shall we give away Moonfleet to somebody yes. that's going to really enjoy it? Uh, at the right, okay. At the back, don't I won't throw it because I'm I'm rubbish at throwing. I was the child at school that was always hit last with everything. I'm going to put it down here. Yeah. But at, my, at my school, we had a French teacher called Mademoiselle Sharp, and she, she's an extraordinary woman. She, she had this great booth of grey hair, which is yellow at the front. When she left, we gave her a silver cigarette box, and she said, she said how did you know that I smoke? But when, when, she was, when she was passing out textbooks or our exercise books, she'd just say, I told you all name! <laughs> So let's let's go to book, book three, which is the cool the cool yeah, scene in this one. So have you read or read it, seen the film? The film has a happy ending. So I have never seen I have never seen the it's a really wonderful war. I mean it's a war but the the period is nineteen thirty nine but it kicks off quite a soft war. 1945. Tell us, tell us why you get The Cruel Sea. Well, the Cruel Sea is one of the books that I just mentioned, which my parents had on their shelves. Monstret had been um, with the Atlantic convoys during the war. There was nothing he didn't know about it. And the book is really autobiographical in many ways. Um, what, what I loved about the book is that it's about ordinary people up against circumstances which are completely beyond their control. It's not about heroes. It's about ordinary people. And the love interest, Julie Hallam, actually dies at the end. I quite like authors who kill off the heroines. I mean, that's very hard, yes, to kill off your heroine. And I haven't got a hardly... She doesn't deserve to die, really. No, Julie, Julie doesn't deserve to die. Unlike many of Harvey's parents. She just doesn't deserve to die, does she? She's a fallen woman, she has to die. It's inevitable. And then we'll come off this with Madame Bovary. Yeah, she did murder somebody. And the book is, the characterization is very beautifully done. I mean, for example, there's the sailor who's a coward. The captain, Ericsson, is, is, is in a way your ideal Corvette captain. He, he's 
calm and uh, paternal. Um, and the monster is completely unsparing about what happened. So I learned a very important thing from him about how to do violence. He's re- I mean, he's tremendously good on that. Isn't he? that one yeah. set piece where, uh, where they're in the middle of the sea around Malta and he, like British sailors, and they're in the water and he doesn't need to rescue them. He, and he's really conflicted because there's an enemy submarine there. So his choice is save the goodies or kill the enemy. That is terrible. I mean, he brings like terrible decisions that one has to face in the world. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the passage that, that has never left me is when there are a lot of sailors um, floating around in a sea of oil and the oil is on fire. In those days, the ship's doctor was basically the captain or anyone the captain nominated. And Montserrat's father was um, an eminent surgeon in Liverpool who, who um, incidentally, wrote an enormous book of philosophy called Human Understanding in Its World. But, um, but, but so Monstrup was made to be the ship's doctor, and he didn't know a damn thing about medicine, really. And in the book, the character is called Lockhart. And Lockhart has to treat a sailor who's come in with, basically, his face burnt off. And all he's got is a tube of ointment. And so he's trying to rub this ointment on the face, and he's thinking, he's just going, please die, please die, please oh, die. It's really, it's and then, really, really wonderful. And then the sailor does die. And, and, and the Lockhart character just feels relief because that's the only way out for either of them. You know? Because he's been rubbing it on and he's removing the skin, yeah. the yeah. layers of skin. I mean, it's yeah. unflinchingly written, isn't yes. it? I mean, you, you yeah. know that that spirit needs. I, I think as a result of reading that passage, <laughs> I, I don't think I ever put anything violent into my books in order to be um, titillating or to give any kind of gratification to anybody. I've always tried to use the violence with a moral purpose. So, you know, my, my second novel was, was quite graphically violent because it was about what the cocaine bastards were doing in Colombia. And there's no, there's no way you could write about that without being honest. It's also about positive things. There's a lot about comradeship, for example. You can learn a lot about comradeship from that book. It is. It's really, it really kind of, you understand that, uh, that kind of military experience. Because mm. your, your, your father was, so he was firewood and then he went off to fight in North Africa and he was, did he have a good, what, a good war? Well, he did. Yes, he, he was. Um, he was. He went into the Second Queen's Dragoon Guards, which is an elite cavalry regiment. It was known as the Queen's Bays. I have to tell you, it was such an elite regiment that the, his brother officers were told that if they ever got into Tatler, they'd be put on a charge. Yeah. So he. Yeah, he, he went to North Africa, um, where he, he actually missed the fighting, I think, and then, then was part of the invasion of Italy. He landed at Rimini on the Gothic line, which was uh, very, very vicious and horrible. He lost his, all his comrades in one battle. I mean, you get that, I mean, that monster again brings that out when you lose, when you lose something, you, you'll be mm. unbelievably close to it. I don't know, mm. space for a long time. With those sailors also, they love their ship, don't they? Rubbish Corvettes were horrible. They were they, they they were very tubby, and so they rolled. They went like that all the time. You so really needed to be seasick. The love also, I think the love story with Julie Hammond is very touching. It is really lovely, and it, and it is. Mm. I'm I'm enormous. I was enormous disappointed that she died at the end. But it kind of, she kind of wrapped it in a way. I mean, it needed that. It needed a tragedy that wasn't really about the war. That book so that book sold so well. He bought a Rolls Royce and drove across Canada in it. He wrote it in the early 50s. I can't remember exactly. I've read everything he's written and nothing quite comes up to that. It's his, it's his real. His, his other masterpiece was The Tribe That Lost Its Head, and it's, it's so politically incorrect. I, I don't think you'd even be able to find it anymore because it was about how. Well, it's, it's about the British leaving a colony in Africa before it's ready to be left and the chaos that ensues. So it's politically incorrect, but probably pretty realistic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and there's hideous violence in that, I mean, really hideous. Well, we shall, we shall move away from, move yes. away from war yeah. and into um, 100 Years of Solitude. Um, so, 100 Years of Solitude. Um, I spent a crucial year in Colombia when I was 18 because I, 
I, I made a complete cock-up of, of us training at Sandhurst. I mean, I, I realised I just wasn't off some material. I, I just wanted to play the guitar and be a hippie. And I, I hated being told what to do. And I didn't, and I didn't want to tell anyone else what to do. Yeah, the only part of the office training I really enjoyed was, you know, the um, the hurtling about of sword courses and things, and having mock battles with Gurkhas, and that's the most fun I've ever had in my life. Because <laughs> Gur Gurkhas, Gurkhas, they were just—you should hear them. They can take twenty minutes to die screaming those people. And so they were hilarious, but but it, it was obvious to all of us that I wasn't going to be an officer. I'd be much better at it now, at my age, actually, because. And back, back, back then, people like me thought we were pacifists, and, and now we basically want to kill everyone. <laughs> so, so um, and, and the Northern Irish troubles were going on, but, but anyway, that, that's kind of peripheral. I, I, I had to escape the disgrace of this episode, and so I went. I, he was very disappointed because he told he told all his comrades I was coming. He was a career soldier, and the, yeah. the general, the, the, um, the Yes, we had. Yes, we had. We had had a general in the army before. Yeah. So I think he had to surrender to Napoleon. He was captured. He didn't surrender. Bernier didn't surrender. We'll come to that later. Plan to to get over the disgrace. Yes, yes. I I got a job right out in the middle of the countryside in Cesar, um, on a ranch where they had a number of children who needed teaching, and the idea was to get them up to O level standard in every subject. Just me, and I. I managed with everything except maths. That's a huge achievement. I mean, luckily, there was a very intelligent woman there who did that. <laughs> but but it, it was a terrific experience. You know, I, I spent the afternoons working on the ranch, so I had three horses, and um, you know, I learned how to use a lasso and all that kind of stuff. And Colombia, for all its faults, is a very vivacious country. It's um, you know the the men the men dress like peacocks and everybody talks at the tops of their voices and they, they really know how to have fun. Um, they also know how to cut each other's arms off with machetes. It's the downside, thing, you know. But um, when I came back from Colombia, I went to Manchester University, which was in 1974 was the most depressing place on earth. Rainy, dreary. Rainy, dreary. Everything was filthy. Ice on the insides of the windows. Um, and all the young people of my age, they just wanted to look as grungy as possible. And, you know, it was all about, oh man, I'm so depressed. <laughs> Some of you might remember it. <laughs> it was just awful. I hated being young in the 70s. And I, was just, I just longed for that sunlight and happiness that we had in Colombia. And then my little sister rang me up and she said, I've read this incredible book and inspired Colombian and you've got to read it. And it is called Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> and of course, it was a hundred years of solitude, and it started me off on a whole decade of reading no fiction unless it was Latin American. And that's 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 really why I write as I do. It's because of my Latin American decade. So that's your your kind of your training camp. Your that's my training camp. Is, um, yeah. is, is Latin American fiction. So yeah. what else apart from Marquez? Well, the thing is, I, I did love IND, Yes. I, I got to know her a little bit eventually. I, I said to her, do you, do you mind me writing about Latin America? And she said, no, as long as I can write about you. <laughs> and she said, she said, only little brown people can write stories anyway. <laughs> so, so I only, there, there was the, um, the extraordinary Mexican writer called Jorge Imbago and Goitia who wrote completely mad books. Nobody else has read it because I'm the only one who can pronounce his name, actually. But, um, there was um, Romulo Gallegos from Venezuela, um, Mario Vargas Llosa from Peru, José Donoso. There's a great literature from Brazil, often lots of that's about war, um, Costa Andrade, all sorts of people. I mean, this could just be a meaningless list of names. So, you know, I even read one of Carlos Fuentes, who actually did enormous books. It took me six months. Ooh, even the war of Took a lot of baths, that did. <laughs> um, so, so, so I, I, I was completely saturated in Latin America when all of my contemporaries were reading Martin Amis. Yeah. And, and the, the, the prevailing philosophy at the time was that you should make writing as clear and concise as possible. You know, cut all the, cut all the nonsense it's out. quite the opposite of Marquez. Marquez is the kind of writer who, who, who will, if he never used a word, if he comes across a word he's never used, he used to write it down and stick it on his fridge to remind himself to use it. And you'd, he has favourite words, like prodigioso, prodigioso comes up all the time, prodigious. So in my first few books, I always have prodigious in there at least once. 
Um, you, you often find that um, writers uh, have a favourite word. Nicholas Monstrup has one as well, which I think is exiguous. That turns up at least once in every book. And do you know what yours is? Well, it used to be prodigious. I'm not quite so sure what it is now. That, that would have been an inheritance. I no, I haven't got. I haven't got a. a I'm going to go through all your books now and try and find them. <laughs> the word. What if I don't keep yes. it? Really yes. <laughs> um, the, the, the thing about the thing about a lot of that Latin American writing at the time was that it, um, it was always political realist. So you knew what was going on politically speaking, uh, if you knew anything about the history of those countries. So you you know that the background to to a book, say, is the the, the civil war in Colombia, for example. Um, but uh, they were also magic realists, which meant that although although they were solidly rooted in reality, also, anything could happen. So, for example, Remedios the Beauty, uh, she ascends into heaven taking the washing with her. And what 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 really annoys everybody is is also or, and well you know what they really are preoccupied with is not that Remedios ascended into heaven, but that she took the washing. The washing. <laughs> 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 and, you know, blood, blood can run up the gutter, for example, in Marquez. And uh, his kind of magic realism was really where he took people's beliefs literally. And so if, for example, you believe that your your arm will wither if you're disrespectful to your parents, then he, he would have a character whose arm has withered because of being disrespectful to their parents. He just took people's um, beliefs literally. That's how he did it. Whereas Isabel Andy, just she, she, she's a natural-born Californian, even though she's from Chile, and she believes in everything anyway. It's a ghosts, you know, premonitions. Um, you know, she, 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 she believes in she, she's, she believes in spirits and everything. So, so Isabel didn't need any kind of technique. So she just she just had to be herself. But, I mean, beautiful imaginative leaps mm. as well. I mean, it's really interesting to think about. Uh, that moment of looking at, at it in the context of Martin Amos, he writes, you know, I love Martin he's very, he's a very conventional novelist, and you've nothing that's conventional about, about Mark Amos, just everywhere you go in your head. No, I mean, magic realism is not in the least bit new. If you think about the tales of King Arthur and magic realism, aren't they? And it's, it's never going to go away. I personally got bored with it because I, I got fed up with plots where anything can happen. It suddenly seemed too easy. But it was a good springboard for me as a novelist to start off like that. So this it was a kind of Christian Madeline of a, of a, of a book, getting you back into the yes. that, that year. Yeah. And you have you have to read it with a, with a, with a, with a slightly blank mind because because the characters have so many similar names. The, the, there are lots of Aurelianos and Aurelios and Jose Arcadios, and you can't remember which ones. Which. You have just give yourself up to them and, and let them happen. It actually doesn't matter damn which ones which. <laughs> So tell me about your first, the first books that you, maybe not like but the Black American tradition, were they the first books that you wrote or the first books that were just right to get published? Well, I'd written, I'd written a book which eventually turned up as a partisan's daughter, Seven Drafts Later, which, which would have, but it, it was too short and it wasn't any good, you know, so it was a sort of a little bit of apprentice stuff. And I had I had written when I was about twenty eight an incredibly detailed account of a love affair, which is never going to be published. But all it did, apart from making me feel better, was was make me realise I actually could write a full length book. So I mean, there's an awful lot of words. I think that's a really stupid thing to say, but it's it's a huge, huge commitment in time writing a book. Well, what you discover is that when I when I went climbing in the Andes, I had I had. Um, Advice from an RAF guy, I've forgotten his name now, but he's quite a well-known mountaineer. He said, he said, the trick of mountaineering is never to look up. You just take the next step. And that's true. It's the same with writing. You, you're surprising how you can get to the end of a novel just by taking the next step. One word in front of it. If you... It reminds me of that, that poem of Alexander Pope's so about a little learning. Um, um, you know, uh, Alps on Alps arise. You look up. You just mustn't look up at these apps, you just keep trudging along and suddenly you're, you're on the other side. That's uh, the best advice for us I've ever heard, actually. <laughs> yes, but it's, it's think of it as mountaineering. Think of it as mountaineering, don't look up. Keep on putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. So shall we trim this one from 100 years of solitude and yeah. donate it? Ah, that's a very fast hand, that one. You spun it all the way again. through. Amazing. Brilliant. You'll en enjoy that and then you must, if you haven't already, come to see. The Latin American trilogy. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Best 
best book title ever, The War of Dog and Animal Never Passed. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps just didn't like it at first. And they got used to it. They thought it would offend old ladies with blue hair. Isn't that a marvellous going to be about a dictator. And pretty much at that, just about exactly that time, all of the Latin American republics democratised, apart from Cuba. And although Castro doesn't, did make ridiculously long speeches, he wasn't sufficiently mad. Um, to sort of satirise in a very amusing way. And it was really annoying for me when Latin America democratised, obviously. But nice for the Latin Americans. <laughs> and, um, and, and the, the one after that was, was going to be, um, I seem to remember it was going to be about a, a medicine man in the, in the jungle or something. And, but, but what, I, I, because, because it was a trilogy, that my first three novels, as the time went by, more and more of my time was taken up with reminding readers what happened in earlier books in case they hadn't read them or didn't know or hadn't remembered. And I got, I, so my, well, the third book was, was very largely about what happened in the previous two. And I thought, this, should, this can't go on. Yeah, it can't go on. And, and, and so I thought, and anyway, by then I was really fed up with magic realism. So I, I kept the political realism. I was wondering what to do. Um, it was slightly desperate because by the time my third novel came out, I was earning the same as I was as a teacher, and I just quit my job. Thinking, oh, I'm all right now. So it an enormously brave thing to do as a, as a writer, writer I can... Well, I, 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 just, I just have total faith, a totally unfounded faith in myself, I think. And then I suddenly realised if I wasn't going to do any more Latin American books, I had to do something else. So the next book, you know, Captain Credit's Mandolin, I kept the political realism. I actually kept the jaunty writing style as well. I kept the Latin American style, but modified for Greece. And what, so, tell, so, so Captain, Captain Corelli was, was the massive book for me. And it was also described as a word of mouth as well. So mm. is, that, is, that, is it true? Is it a word, was it a word of mouth book? Did it just grow? Was it an instant No, it was. No, no, it, it grew over several years. I think 2.5 um, million copies in the country. Well, my publisher actually might know better than me, but it did. It, 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 it came, it, it, it developed over a few years, and by word of mouth. And then the press spoiled it by noticing that it was word of mouth, and they started writing about this word of mouth success, so it suddenly mushroomed even more because of the press. So right. Helpful rather than spoiling, rather than being... No, 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 it's fantastically helpful. I mean, because of, uh, because of that, I have a house. But what I mean... <laughs> What, what, what I mean is, is, is that it puts an end to the word of mouth, because now it's well, word of press. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then somebody read it in one of the uh, Richard Curtis books. I seem to Was it a few blind readings at the end of... Oh, well, that was quite a nifty trick, because um, working title, we're going to make the film of Captain Corelli after... Was it Love Actually? Or was it... Notting Hill. Notting Hill. Hill. It was Notting Hill. So, so they were going to make... The, the film of Captain Crowley after Notting Hill. So from the point of view of working title, it was an advertisement for their next film. And it, 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 it wasn't as helpful as it could have been because the cover of the book is, was different in the USA. Ah, oh, so that would be... Yeah. That was, that was a sort of, yeah, the, from a marketing point of view, I wish they'd had the American one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's always... I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean we talk, we'll talk a little bit more later about the great, I mean, your great themes of, of, of love and love and love. It's not... It's not, I mean, Captain Corelli is only in it for a third of the book, and his man is really, I mean, his man really is, um, is Vlad Vlanja, she's the man, she's the mandolin. But he plays on that. Oh, but let's not go, let's not go too far with that, because we should get on to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we should get on to Mamma Talking of great, of other, of unbelievably brilliant, great, classic, love stories, and one of the greatest French books. Um, tell us why you've chosen Madame Bovary. It's because although although you know the, the husband is 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 boring and although Emma Bovary is is really in many ways quite obnoxious, I I felt desperately sorry for her. I sympathised with her so much. I mean, being ha having to s settle for a life which was less than she would have liked, and that happens to almost every single one of us. That that that's why it's such a universal book. And, this, and the same with um, 
Yes, they all are. You know, I think with a heroine, if you're a man, you ought to fall in love with her, and I did fall in love with Emma, even though she's obnoxious, and I thought that that's quite. Did you see what I love about her? You really see how true Bernard and Charles Bovary's eyes, didn't he? Incredible detail. All the way through, he just he never really gives that up since admiration. It's, 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 I mean, another book very like it, which I also love and could have chosen instead, chosen instead is Anna Karenina. Which is, it's very similar, isn't it, very if you think about it? Exactly. And, um, um, I sort of owe it, I owe this to an English teacher actually at my, at my public school, Richard Osborne, he, he, he's now a music critic, and he, he, he forced us to read D.H. Lawrence even though it wasn't on the syllabus. He was a very subversive teacher, he got sacked of course. Um, but, but Richard Osborne, he said, he said to me, he said, you, it's no good just reading literature written in English, you've got to read, you've got to read Madame Bovary. You've got to read Balzac, you've got to read Tolstoy and Tegenev. He said, until you've read all of these people, you're not literate. Yeah, and, I, he's, and he's right. I absolutely right. took him seriously. And, and, and so he, he caused my, my sort of general reading to sort of become worldwide rather than working. What an absolutely brilliant advice. And so you were in the late teens when you first come across Manfred Yes, it, no, I. I I remember him telling me it was a book I had to read, and I don't think I read it until I was about thirty. It was late, advice taken late. But but he he's he's um I, I I'm not sure what to think about Flaubert because there's this story that he would agonise for days and days and days over a single word. Do you, I don't do you really think that's true? Is that Julian Barnes kind of creating mythology around him? It's just Julian Barnes hoping to get the Legion of Honor for you. Because, because that, I mean, was, I don't think he agonised over every single word because at one point Emma Bovary's army was described by Charles being brown and later on, admittedly, it might just be the light, on their wedding, on their wedding night, he describes him as being an, an incredibly dark blue. So I don't, I feel that's a... Well, that's bad copy editing. Yeah. That's entirely the fault of the publisher. I thought it might be the fault of the translation. <laughs> it could just be because the, um, no, the, word, the words were um, describing dark, darkness of eyes and fresh and not as... Um, oh, I see. Yes, I suppose. Yeah, could be, could that could be the case, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a book that we could say that it's, it's, it's about how love it can be ruined by domesticity. I mean, she's really... she's she's It's your expectations of what romantic love is... Mm. And then how how that's actually delivered. And that comes across there's there's quite a lot of poems we've talked about. And she wouldn't have had a very busy domesticity, you know. One of the secrets of happiness is to stay busy. If if your if if, if your if your idea of, of, of a good life is sitting around letting everyone else do the work, you're not gonna be happy. You know, you're not gonna find a good life. And that's that's what happens to Emma, I think. And so many women like her must have been like that. I think I think that's 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 why you know when the First World War turns up and even middle and upper class women decide they really must get a job, that's actually personally very liberating for them because it made happiness more likely. Yes, I think I mean I think that's a really that's an important point, and particularly in a uh, in a in a marriage, if you're if you're both very very busy, then the disappointment that comes from the, the difference in your expectations from the reality of the kitchen sink on that we've got married in a long relationship. So who should we who should we give grades? I'm not going to throw I'm going to put it on the uh, on the footstool here. So we're now going to come on and talk about your very last book. Yeah. That's not really a book, is it? That's a loaf. <laughs> Who, who has who has read more truthfully? Oh, good. You can't believe my agent. <laughs> <laughs> who, saw, who saw it on the telly? <laughs> I, I saw it on the telly the first time round with um, Anthony Hopkins. Oh, that was, yeah. yeah, it must have been lovely. And for that reason, I don't really want to watch the new version. So, I mean, we, we, we'll skip quickly over the TV, TV thing. I thought we would promise not to talk about that too much. I like I like the TV thing. The reason that I liked it was because I'm quite new to Tolstoy. 
I'm, I read, having lied about reading Anchorenda for many years, I managed to read it two years ago, and I loved it. I mean, in Emma Bovary wrote that unbelievable, you know, tragedy on every page, but also the likeness of the story, too, is very, can be very and Anna is more lovable than Emma. She is much more lovable. And also her, I mean, her, her relationship is much more, her adultery is slightly more forgiving. Brodsky is unbelievably gorgeous, and her husband <laughs> is, uh, husband, he, they're just really badly matched. I mean, like, that's all I've got. I don't know what to say about it. Um, so the thing I liked about the TV programme was because my, I've always done the board piece because the names are very difficult, and they, all the Russian, you know, the yeah. passionate mix and the, the different versions of things, and now I know to say, that's Adrian Edmondson, and that's James So that's, that it inspired me to read, to read board piece. I used to shorten the names. I, mean, I don't do it anymore because I take the trouble to learn them. I think it's really shameful the way that British people don't bother to learn to pronounce foreign names. Yes. I, was, I read but, the beautiful boy was unable to talk about any in because I could never bother to remember When I read um, Crime and Punishment, I, did, I didn't bother with Raskolnikov. I just called him Rask. I'm sure <laughs> there are people do that with things like Balkanskaya and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you might. And I, I often think of the themes of literature as coming in polarities. So you, the male, female, good, evil, shame and honour, well, war and peace. You, do you follow me? That this, this, yeah. there seems to be so many literature seems to be about exploiting these polarities. I think I learned that from War and Peace. And that there's other, and there's a long, long section of War and Peace which most people skip, which is about the philosophy of history. And I actually found that because I'm interested in history, I found that bit rather fascinating, because. Tolstoy has a completely different attitude to what was prevailing in Europe at the time. And philosophers like Hegel were saying that history is actually the inexorable march of the human spirit towards ultimate freedom, and that the function of the state is to maximize freedom. So, and that there was a sort of inevitable historical process going on. Karl Marx thought that there was an inevitable historical progress, uh, process going on, not about spirit, but about economics. So that's why they said Marx turned Hegel on his head. That Marx thought that because of the, na the nature of economics, we would inevitably end up with, with socialism. And, uh, you, you know, and his analysis of capitalism up to his own time is actually very astute, I think. It's just his predictions for the future were hopeless because he didn't understand how, what a, what a protean creature capitalism is. It just adapts to circumstances. Um, rather like the human race itself. So, so, so the, the prevailing philosophers of history, as well, history were all very determinist. Whereas Tolstoy thinks that actually everything is a matter of chance and luck. And he's, and he's right. I mean, he's, he's on the money with it. I don't like to believe it, but I think he is right, yes. Well, I would say one, one of the things that really struck me when I was doing, I was doing my homework for tonight was that uh, I'm looking back at some press cuttings of of Captain Corelli and also Birds Without Wings and it, what really comes out from that is that you're you say I'm, I'm, it's my war in peace tell me what you mean by that when you're, when you're talking about your work well I wanted to write books which were about everything you know and, and I, th I think that might be the reason why I seem to have just as many male readers as female readers for example because men like books in which a lot happens and women tend to like books about relationships and I write books about relationships in which a lot of things happen so. You, you follow me? Love so, more. So, so, yes. so I, I think that as, as a writer you need something to aspire to. So, so poetically I sort of aspire to Kavafis, and in, in fiction I aspire to Tolstoy, although I've written lots of trivial sort of stuff just to amuse myself or to amuse other people. I, like, no, nobody could say that Red Dog is a very profound or important book, for example. But with my, with my big novels, I, I am trying, I'm, that's what I'm aspiring to, even if I fall short. And with Captain Corelli, I thought I'd almost made it, but I wasn't really convinced by my own ending. Okay, and you know, I, I, as time goes by, I like the ending more. But with, with Birds Without Wings, I thought, yeah, I've done it. I've, this is the best I will ever do. And, and, you st and you still feel that? I still think that. And in, in Turkey, lots of people tell me that I have written their war and peace. So in a way, I sort of don't bother with... You know, the French or the British don't think that. But, I mean, I had this extraordinary experience not long ago driving into Bursa in Turkey, and there were huge posters of me along the side of the road. 
That's never quite going to happen in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite starry, though, isn't it? It's quite, you know, it is. It's fantastically starry. Yes. A, a pin-up, a pin-up of the literary world. Yeah, they're using it to teach Ottoman history at Turkish universities. So that's a huge compliment then to you, or the, the quantity and quality of the research that you've that book. Yeah, they, 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 for example, didn't know very much about Ataturk because he's so mythologised. They, they sort of didn't know the details of his life, and they were rather interested to find them out. <laughs> that's the kind of feels like you can't even ima imagine that, I suppose, we're just waiting distant from it. Mm. Um, and having that distance of you know, articulate that mythology is. Well, it's not mm. I, didn't, I didn't actually set out to debunk the myth because I think the funny thing about that particular myth is that it's mostly true. He really was an extraordinary man. He's, he's the only dictator in the history of the world who thought that the purpose of his dictatorship was to set up a democracy. He's the only di dictator in the history of the world who wanted his country to get smaller. No. Extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. An egoistic. And he wasn't. He wasn't interested in detail the way Mussolini was. I mean, Mussolini was obsessed with what kind of shoelaces and soldiers should have. Ataturk left all the details to his to his ministers. He just he was an ideas man. Going back, I mean, the, the, uh, many people, I think, had Steve Jobs, you know, great a great ideas man and a great delegator and creates an enormous empire. So, yeah. you know, you're mm. putting him through the model of our business school. Great leaders are our ideas people who are really good at getting other talented people to implement their, their vision and not feel able to do it all by itself. I suppose you can't do that as a writer, isn't it? So I'm, not, I'm not going to give anybody my copy of, of your War and Peace, which is first without wings, but if you haven't read it, and you have read Captain Crowley, you must, <laughs> must read it, because it is really, it's a really spectacular book, and it's all those things that Lily says about you know, the, the book that does everything. And peace and war and love and politics and the things that drive uh, the, the big picture in the world, but also the humanity in the ordinary lives. And then to close back, because we have some questions, but I wanted to bring us back to of love and desire. There's a poem, and actually, two um, my favourite poem in the whole book, and how, how lucky am I to get one of my favourite poems to read my favourite poem. It, it's, about, it's about having a lover when you're old, basically. She says it's fiction. <laughs> it's, it's called. Yeah, put out the light. Close the shutters. Put out the light. Place one candle on the shelf. See, we are young again. Our malformations, all life's etchings in our flesh are gone, are evened out, engoldened. Softened by shadow. Your hair smells sweet. Your head in the crook of my arm. Your hand on my chest. We'll lie like this till the candle dies. And then, in the dark, lie face to face. They'll glitter like moonlight on water. Our old, experienced eyes. Very, very much. It's just been a complete treat sharing your books, and um, I very much hope I can conjure up another moment and bring you back for another session. Thank you, Lady Benny. Thank you for listening to the books that built me. You can find out more on the website, thebookstheatbuiltme.co.uk, or on Facebook. And I'd like to thank the lovely sponsors of the books that built me, Champagne Bollinger, Prestat Chocolate and Tatler. <laughs>